Good afternoon, and welcome to the podcast series, The Global Impact of Regenerative Agriculture, organized by the United Nations Development Program with Rodale Institute. My name is Jameson Irvin, and I work on nature-based solutions within UNDP's Nature for Development Program. This podcast series consists of three episodes, and it will introduce you to regenerative agriculture. It will explain how it can improve our existing global food system and how it can help build climate resilience. In this episode, which will introduce you to regenerative agriculture, I'm joined by Jeff Moyer, who is the Chief Executive Officer at Rodale Institute. Welcome, Jeff, and thank you so much for joining this conversation today. Thank you, Jamie. It's a real pleasure to be with you and with your listeners. Well, terrific. Let's get started. Let's start by defining regenerative agriculture. Regenerative agriculture is a term that has recently started appearing in scientific, technical, and popular literature. Could you help simplify this term? What are the basics? How would you describe regenerative agriculture to someone who's not an agricultural expert? What are some of the basic practices? Well, regenerative agriculture is not really a term that is easily simplified. Uh, that's because it, we're dealing with very complex systems. So when we talk here at Rodale Institute about regenerative agriculture, we always stick this extra word in there. We add the word organic, because we really believe that in order to be truly regenerative, we have to base it on the concepts that are really embodied in the way we manage farms and resources organically. So we talk about regenerative organic agriculture when we discuss it. And that's really a term that grew out of a long conversation that Robert Rodale, our founder's son, had both with his father and with the organic community. As he was beginning to think about expanding and growing the organic community, he wanted to get that word uh, handed off to the USDA. Now, whenever you give something away, you also lose some control over what those words mean. And as he did that, this new word started to formulate, which was sustainable and sustainability. Now, those are words that are relatively weak. So Robert Rodale never liked those words. And he began focusing his attention on finding another word that really carried the characteristics that he thought were important in terms of climate change and human health beyond the idea of trying to sustain systems that we already have. And he began to discuss this word regenerative and regeneration as it applied to agricultural systems. Sustainable was really a marketing word. It never had any sort of certification around it. Uh, several organizations tried to create certification standards around the word sustainable, but they never really took hold. And now at a point 30 years down the road, the word sustainable, it means everything and it means nothing both at the same time. And so marketers and people who are involved with the concepts around change have been looking for another word and they too have begun to gravitate towards this word regenerative. So by linking the word regenerative to organic, we think we've really created a, a system that encompasses all of the values that consumers bring to the marketplace, not just one particular value like carbon. Hmm. Thank you for clarifying that. So if you were to distill regenerative organic agriculture to the 
practices, sort of if, if someone's familiar with farming, what are the top practices that really get at the heart of regenerative organic agriculture? When we define this word regenerative organic agriculture, we base it on four main pillars or concepts. First, we base it, as I mentioned, on this concept of certified organic. So that means for us, we take all of the synthetic chemicals out of the production system. So that would be one practice that we would do right off the bat. And that includes salt-based fertilizers for the most part. Now, if you're going to remove something, you have to replace it with something. You can't just uh, run a production system without that. So the second pillar that we base the idea of regenerative organic on is soil health. Now, when you look at the microflora and fauna of the soil, we're looking at systems like crop rotations, cover cropping, and compost application. So we begin to think about feeding that soil microbiology and building up the health of the soil. So that's the second pillar out of the four. The third really focuses outside of soil and thinks about animal welfare and what sorts of mechanisms do we put in place to treat the animals that ultimately uh, many of us will consume in the, in the context of agriculture, but how do we link animals back to agriculture? You know, a little bit of a side note, much of agriculture, the way it exists in the world, but specifically in the United States today, doesn't see animals as a part of agriculture. So if you talk to people in um, ag systems, they'll say, well, animals are no more part of an agricultural system than say the ethanol plant down the road is, or maybe even humans. They're all end recipients of agricultural products. So soybeans might go to an ink factory where they're turned into soy ink, or it could go into animal feed, or it could go into uh, a dish that you might prepare in your kitchen. So I don't consider myself necessarily part of the agricultural system just because I'm the end recipient of the food. Farmers and, and, and many ag professionals have divorced those two. In a regenerative organic system, we brought them back together and we said, no, animals clearly are a component of an agricultural system. They belong there. And then the way we manage them has to be managed in concert with this idea of soil health. So we haven't divorced those two, uh, soil health and animals, we've melted them together. So animal welfare is important. And then the fourth pillar uh, that we take into account is the idea of social justice. We believe that when consumers come to the marketplace and wanna support a regenerative organic food system, they don't wanna support a system that in some way, shape or form uh, diminishes the relationship we have with farmers and farm workers. Uh, it's disingenuous for us to say we want to support soil health, but not the health of the people, but even the financial health, uh, mental health, all of that that's focused around social justice uh, for the people who produce that food for us. So we see that as the fourth pillar in this four-legged table that holds up the idea of regenerative organic agriculture. Great. Thank you. So four pillars, certified organic, building soil health, ensuring animal welfare, and promoting social justice. I'm wondering if you could dig a little deeper into soil health. What are the tools that farmers have on hand for promoting soil health? What's different about soil health and traditional agricultural practices? Well, let's take a step back before I answer that question specifically and 
and say that it's been a relatively short period of time that we've actually been able to talk about the concepts of soil health. For many, many years, decades, probably generations, soil scientists really wanted to talk about soil quality. You know, we talk about air quality, we talk about water quality. Well, they wanted to talk about soil quality. The problem with the term quality is it's divorced from the, from the idea of life. So if you wanna have healthy soil, you have to first agree that we're really focusing on the living component of the soil because the quality component is sort of what we inherit or what we purchase or what we rent or what is sort of naturally there. That's the quality of the soil. And we can have poor quality soils that are very healthy and we can have very high quality soils that are very unhealthy. So we want to link this idea of health to soil and that's been a struggle which we're slowly overcoming as farmers and uh, soil scientists begin to understand that the soil is more than its natural components that's made up from the ground rock fragments that have made it or from the chemical component that we might test when we take a soil sample out mm. of our farm or out of our garden and send it off to a laboratory and get it tested. You know, they'll look at the chemical component, but that doesn't really tell us everything about the whole concept of that health. So it's been a relatively short period of time that we've been talking about soil health, which makes it a little challenging because we haven't clearly defined it any more than we have defined this concept of human health. We don't really know what that means. You know, we, we hope that we're healthier today as individuals than we were yesterday or last week, but what are we doing to make ourselves healthier? And then how do we um, measure or monitor that status of health. Uh, and we know that it's not a continuous uh, incline or decline when we look at our status of soil health. You know, some days the soil may be healthier uh, and the next day maybe not quite as healthy as the microbes live and, and die in the soil and it's very dynamic, it's not very fixed. We know that scientists and, and you know, the average person would love to have this one measurement that says, ah, here's how we determine what healthy soil is. You know, just like we do with humans, you might say, well, blood pressure has something to do with it, and clearly it does, but it's not like we can just test somebody's blood pressure and then say they're healthy, because there's much more involved with human health, just as there is with soil health. So as we begin to think about soil health, we have to understand we don't have a clear definition of what it means. You know, we've only been talking about it for a relatively short period of time, and in the context of that conversation, we begin to think about the practices that we know improve soil health. One is we see uh, more diversity of life in the soil. Oh, great. So we're going to look at that soil microflora and fauna and see who's down there living and breathing. And as we expand that diversification, we know we're getting healthier. We don't know what all those life forms are doing, you know, there's more life under the soil than there is above the soil. And we understand more about outer space than we do about the soil. It's very complicated, dynamic, changeable, and hard to study fragment of the Earth's uh, component. But we do know that it's critical to our uh, success in being healthy as people and also success in being healthy as a planet. So we begin to look at practices. So for example, if uh, on the human health side, if you were a smoker and you stop smoking, your lungs are going to regenerate. We know that through science that your lungs regenerate, 
but my lungs and your lungs or somebody else who's listening to this, their lungs may regenerate faster or slower than mine, but it's somewhat irrelevant as long as we agree that there's a practice of not smoking makes us healthier. So we know that if we cover the ground with something green and growing, the more percentage of the time we do that, the healthier the soil is going to get because photosynthesis is a tool that improves soil health. Ah, so there we understand that. So let's put that to work. Let's try as farmers and as consumers or gardeners or wherever you're touching the food system, let's try and ensure that the ground is covered for a larger percentage of the time. So cover cropping is important. Crop rotations are important because we have to feed that microbiology a diverse diet. So having different plants on the soil surface, dropping their leaves, dropping their seeds, or their roots interacting with the, the, the microorganisms in the soil, that's diversity. So we want to have uh, crop rotations. You know, if you grow, you drive across the Midwest today, you're going to see, well, once the snow melts, you'll see corn stalks sitting there. There was corn there last year. Uh, nine times out of 10, there'll be corn there again this year. And there's probably been corn there for the last 10 or 20 years. Well, that's not a very diverse rotation. So you begin to focus your energy on uh, creating an environment where certain microbes will live in that corn chemical rotation. So when we break out of that and have a diverse rotation, we get a healthier soil. So there's some tools that we can put to work that we know will improve soil health. And that's really what we're focusing our energy on. Great, thank you. We think about the benefits of regenerative organic agriculture. What do you see as the top three? Well, the top one for most people would be this idea that we can improve our personal health as we improve the ideas of regenerative organic agriculture. So as the soil health improves, our personal health improves. For a long time, as people, we've sort of divorced ourselves from this idea that our health is connected to the soil's health. Just like the salt content of our human body is very similar to the salt content of the ocean, our, our, our internal gut microflora and fauna is very similar in its diversity to a good, healthy soil microflora and fauna. So we're all connected together. So as we improve the health of soil, we improve our personal health. So that's one of the key drivers for most people, particularly in the uh, consumer market or in the marketplace, because everybody wants to be healthier. Uh, and, and by improving soil health, we can do that. I think the second thing that's really important for people to understand is that as soil health improves, so does planetary health. You know, the, the main tool that we have for sequestering carbon and pulling it out of the atmosphere is photosynthesis. It's, it's a hard word for me to say. Because it's naturally occurring, we take it for granted and we don't realize how much power is in that relationship between a plant, the soil, and the atmosphere. And our ability to pull carbon out of the atmosphere with plants is tremendous. So by having that diversity, we not only improve the of, of cover crops and crop rotations, we not only improve the health of the soil, but we sequester carbon out of the atmosphere and put it in the soil at greater depths, which is really important, so that it is held for a long period of time and we can begin to reduce climate change that we're all experiencing on the planet. So I'd say those are the biggest components that consumers and, and the average person in, on the street would understand why it's important for them to think about regenerative agriculture and regenerative organic agriculture and building soil health because it impacts their, their life on a daily basis. Jeff, when we think about the global context, we know that 
more than 2 billion people on this planet farm for a living, for their livelihoods. And the average size, let's say 80% or more, are on farms the size of under three hectares or five acres or less. And many of them, up to a third, according to the latest science, are farming on ever-degraded soil health. My question to you is, what steps can policymakers, development professionals, consumers, and others take now to help support the transformation that we need to see toward regenerative organic agricultural systems? What's it going to take to change the world? Well, I'm really glad to hear that you brought the idea of policymakers and consumers into this conversation because clearly farmers cannot do it alone. I would say most farmers that I've met around the world, no matter, regardless of what size of farm they're farming on, whether it's a large farm uh, in Argentina or a small farm in India, farmers have a lot in common in terms of the fact that they're, they're all working with the soil. They all want to improve the health of the soil, but they need to have the support of consumers in the marketplace and policymakers so that we don't artificially uh, incentivize bad behavior. And unfortunately, that's what we've done. When we focus all of our energy and, and then one metric of success, which would be yield, we discount everything else that agriculture brings to the, to this, to the table in terms of ecological services. We focus only on that one metric yield, and that in itself is what's caused the degradation of our soil because we, we focus on yield and we say, we're gonna, we want high yields at any cost. Mm. So looking at short-term economic gain, no matter what scale you're farming at, and we're sacrificing long-term stability in the system. It's starting to show up clearly in some developing nations where soils are highly degraded and we need to change policies and say, no, wait a minute, long-term policy decisions should be based on soil health, not on short-term yields. Uh, here in Pennsylvania, for example, we've been working with our state legislature and governor to create a farm bill for the state of Pennsylvania. I believe it's the first state in the nation, I could be wrong, but I believe it's the first state in the nation to have its own farm bill separate, but in, you know, in partnership with the federal farm bill that we all know about. Now, our state farm bill has several pillars of, of activity, one of them being transition to organic because our governor has said, if we can improve the health of soil and transition farms to organic, we can improve the long-term integrity of our systems. Great, so how do we do that? Well, first thing he said was we need to uh, create some consulting services so that farmers that want to make a change on their farm have a safety net. They have a place that they can go for information. So there are now consultants in the state of Pennsylvania that will go out to any farm that wants to change the way they manage their soil and walk them through the process. So those kinds of policy decisions, uh, those kinds of public funds that can be allocated to helping farmers make the positive change are incredibly valuable. You know, farmers are just like anybody else. They're going to do what they're incentivized to do. So if they're incentivized to do something that leads to uh, soil degradation, that's what they're going to do. But if we can re-incentivize them and say, no, what we really want you to do is farm in a different way so that we can improve the health of the soil and produce the same kind and quality of food that you were producing or, or fiber products, then uh, 
we all benefit. And I think it's money wisely spent and well spent. You know, there was a study done here, again, and it happened to be in Pennsylvania, but I believe there's been several studies now across the globe where we looked at changing people's diet. Money that was spent on diet had a seven-fold return on savings on medical activities. So here in the study in Pennsylvania, for every dollar that we put into food by feeding people healthier food that was produced on healthier soils, we saved $7 in medical costs. Well, that's huge. If we can do that around the world and say that's a reason to incentivize a different way of farming, how do we create policies that support that? It brings in a whole new conversation and discussion around how all everybody can work together for what we all want on the back end. Well, great. Thank you so much, Jeff, for sharing your expertise with our podcast listeners. Oh, it's, it's been my pleasure to have a conversation with you. I think the exciting part of, of this whole discussion, and I know you've talked to some of other staff members here, is that what we're talking about doing here isn't just a great story. It's not just about thoughts or philosophies. It's really based on science. So we know we have good, solid agricultural science that has led us to these decisions that supports the ideas behind policy because you can't change policy without science. You can't change farm practices without science. And so by putting this idea of science as underpinnings underneath this entire conversation, we know that we have a bright future and together we'll be very successful. Great, well, thank you again. And to all our listeners, thank you for tuning in. We invite you to explore the next episode in this podcast series which focuses on regenerative agriculture and the future of global food systems. Stay tuned.